Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. All right, my guest today has traveled the world working as a production sound mixer and has worked in almost every state in the USA. Please welcome Matt Vogel. Hey, how's it going? Awesome. Glad you could be here. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right, now, Matt, we always start the show by asking when you're mixing on set, what's in your audio kit? So tell us about your mics, your mixer, power distribution, and everything in between. So I've got a Sound Devices 633 is the main mixer that I use. I have a 788 as well when I do more kind of studio-based stuff. But the 633 has been great for me, uh, and I'm an electrosonics guy, so I have um, a whole mess of uh, SRBs, and I have an SRC that I got recently, which I've been playing with. And then I've got mostly SMQV transmitters. I've got a couple UM400s that I bought years ago um, that I still use. And I've got a, an LT transmitter, the multi-band that I use with the SRC as well. And then I use the SRBs for hops as well as in my bag. And then uh, for microphones, I mostly stick with the Sankin Cost 11s like everybody else. I've got a Countryman B6 that I use is kind of my backup emergency mic when I can't find a good hiding spot with either my Cost 11s or I have some Tram TR50s that just kind of sit in my bag that I rarely use, but sometimes, you know, sometimes those are, they're good mics to have as well. Uh, but the, the B6 is kind of like my backup, like when all else fails, you know, I got to pop that mic out of a buttonhole and can't be seen. That's, that's a great mic for that. I have a MKH-50 Sennheiser and an MKH-60, which I bring with me wherever I go. Those have been great. The 60, I've had two of them. Um, I sold one recently, but uh, those things have been great for all my world travels and being out and, you know, flying in airplanes and getting to different locations. It's super durable. I actually left one out in the rain at a, at a football game once and came back and it, you know, it was working that night in the hotel room. So those, I've been very happy with the durability of those Sennheisers. Lockets, I use the uh, Ultrasyncs. Just got a couple of those. And yeah, that's what I pretty much use. Okay. Uh, what, what kind of batteries do you use? Oh, I, uh, MP1s. And then I have uh, an MD6 power distribution from Soundguy Solutions, which uh, Gene Martin is a guy out in California who, who makes those. Um, so I've been using that for a while and it's, it's been pretty good. Oh, headphones. What kind of headphones do you like? Uh, I've always been using the Sony MDR7506s. For, I've been mixing for about 15 years and I've been using these same headphones not the same pair but that 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 brand forever super durable i've dropped these things hundreds of times on the ground and they're still you know they're still kicking it they sound great and you know they're 
durability is is really big for me. I'm kind of I'm kind of rough on my gear, so I like stuff that you know takes a beating and still still keeps on working. So let's talk about some of the projects you've worked on. I noticed on your bio you had mentioned the Oprah Winfrey Show. So tell us a little bit about the setup and what you remember from the show. So I worked with Oprah for about four years uh, after she finished the talk show. She was doing that for 25 years. She started a show called Oprah's Next Chapter, which was Oprah trying to get out of the studio. So she would interview celebrities in their homes, on film sets, on private islands. Uh, and we'd go all over the place. We went to Skywalker Ranch and interviewed George Lucas. We spent two weeks in India. We did a refugee camp in Haiti after the earthquake uh, with Sean Penn. And they all on paper look like a basic one-on-one -on -one interview setup, but really at any moment there could be an audible and we had to be ready for that. Uh, so we, you know, we would plan for days for a sit-down interview, but drop of a hat, you know, boom, Oprah would say, all right, we're going this way. So we always had to be ready for anything. So our audio setups for that were, uh, we had, well, we had five to six cameras, um, one on a jib and usually three or four on sticks. And then we had like one or two handheld cameras, um, more kind of BTS behind the scenes shots. And I had wireless uh, SRs on each one of those cameras, just in case we were ready to break off. I couldn't go hard line to all those. Usually we're in one location, but just in case, you know, she decided to walk away, we all had to break off and be ready to go. I would always put a, a, a Sankin Cost 11 on Oprah. I usually have two plant mics hidden in between her and her interviewee just as a backup in case something went down or, you know, if there was a rustle or something like that, they didn't like to break up the interviews if, if it was possible. So I always tried to hide something, whether it be like a cub or, you know, a cost 11 in a plant or arm of a chair or wherever. It never sounded great, but it was, it was necessary. I was able to hire a lot of local A2s and second mixers on those shoots, which was really fun meeting uh, different mixers around the country and around the world. I used a lot of like the Facebook forums. There's a lot of Facebook sound mixer forums and I would get referrals from different mixers and I would narrow that down to who I'd want to hire. And I'd, and I'd always try to find guys who had complimenting gear to me because we would try to match our bags uh, just in case a mixer had to go ahead to a second location. Um, I wanted to make sure that they had same matching frequency blocks as me. So I was finding a lot of guys with, with electrosonics and the same blocks, which I use. Um, so some of the shoots were pretty complicated where we had, we'd have to leapfrog different scenes. So it would be essentially a long walk and talk with Oprah and the talent stopping along the way, talking to different groups of people. So for example, when we were in Haiti, Sean Penn had set up a refugee camp, like on a golf course. It was a temporary camp, but it ended up being there for well over a year or two. Um, and we were walking through the camp and we would have maybe four or five stops along this loop uh, where she would interview maybe five, five different people. We would have two mixers and we had one A2. Uh, we had two 788 rigs, five inputs for the guests, uh, one for Oprah, one for Sean, and then we'd have a boom. So the A rig, which is myself, we would, I would have the first five people mic'd up in the first scene and the B rig, would have the next group of people along the path. So after we were done with interviewing the first group, the second mixer would continue walking with Oprah and Sean to the next location. And myself and the A2 would pull all the mics off 
of the first people and we run to the third setup and start pre-miking everybody up there. And that whole time the B-mixer was walking with Oprah recording the second scene. And when we were done pre-miking the third group, I would run back to the second scene, pick up Oprah and Sean as they were ready to walk to the third scene and continue recording. And then I would have the mics rolling and, and for the for the third scene. So they just walk up to a scene and it was seamless. And that time the second mixer and the A2 would pull all the mics off of the second setup and run ahead to the fourth setup and pre-mic everybody there. So we were constantly leapfrogging, um, putting mics on, putting mics off, and it was really the only the only way we could do it. And that was it was a pretty interesting way of approaching a shoot. Um, I mean I guess if we had bigger, you know, six six eight eights, we could have done it at all at the same time. But at that time with the seven eight eights that was pretty much the max that we could do. How many times did you have to do this in a day? Um, just one, just one for a day. So we would have a lot of setup time. We'd, we'd fly to a location and we'd we had a lot of location scouting time, which was great. So we'd go do a location scout. I'd be able to do all my scans wherever we were, make sure I had, I mean, I'm, I'm running, you know, maybe 15 different frequencies. So I always had to make sure that I had my, my freaks clear. Um, and then we'd have a setup day. And then the shoot day, we had enough time in the morning to set up. So everything, we had plenty of time to set everything up. So when, when she arrived, um, you know, we were instantly rolling. Um, There's a lot of BTS shots of that show that they would include. And literally, we're rolling as she's showing up. And I would have to get my mic on her as she's walking into set. And all the cameras are on me and her. And like that was always included in the show. So it was kind of weird. Like every episode, there's a shot of Matt either slating or putting a mic or mic on somebody. So that was always, always pretty interesting. But we did this several times. I mean, when I, the first time we did this was when she took her whole audience to Australia. And we had this one scene on the, the Sydney Harbor Bridge where we had to film her and 300 guests all climbing up on top of the Sydney Harbor Bridge. And everybody was tethered in with safety chains. You can only walk in certain paths. And it was very segmented where you could walk. And there's a lot of steel up there. And RF was really, really bad. We were doing our location scout and like, you know, we don't have much distance on here. So we had to figure out a way to place mixers. And we had a lot of local mixes that we had that we from Australia that we hired. And we would, you know, place different mixers along the path of, of the bridge from where she started up into the top so that, you know, we always had a clear signal no matter where we were. Now, that brings up a, an interesting question as well. So people wanting to buy new wireless sets when since we're losing the 600 megahertz range, what block should we buy? You know, what's our frequency range that you would recommend? That's a good question. I mean, I think your best bet is to, if, if you have a local sound shop in your town, is talk to them because they usually have a good idea of what the best blocks are in town. Like in Chicago, we go to Second City Sound and they have the whole spectrum mapped out for everybody. So if you call up and say, hey, you know, I want to buy some wireless. Do I go up to like block 23? Do I go to block 22? Uh, and they'll, they'll say, well, you know, those aren't very good, but you should do wideband frequencies. So Electrosonics and Zaxcom and Wizicom all have multi-block wireless now. So instead of just being stuck to block 20 or block 21, you've got block 470, 19, and 20. So you've got three blocks in one unit. So you have a much bigger spectrum that you can scan through giving you a lot more 
a lot more frequencies to choose from because it's shrinking. I mean, when I first started, we had all the way up to block 29, I think, and we're going down. I think we're losing 24, 25, and 26. If we haven't lost it already, it's going to happen really soon. So it's, it's shrinking quickly. So it's nice that there's really only two blocks, essentially, A, A1 and B1 that you can buy. If you're buying them in new wireless, it's probably best to go into those wide bands. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you had worked on a lot of the Food Network shows and uh, with Andrew Zimmern and things like that and traveled the world. So tell us a little bit about recording food shows around the world. So I started working on cooking shows by, I filled in for a mixer on diners, drive-ins, and dives uh, when they were in Chicago and ended up doing about 10 to 15 episodes with them and learned a lot of the tricks from their mixer, uh, Jeff Assel, who's been on the show since, I think, the pilot. So, I mean, I think there are 25 seasons. He's been there for a long time. Um, and through that, I met other DPs and producers who worked on other food shows and got hooked up with Andrew Zimmern's spinoff of Bizarre Foods called Delicious Destinations. And I worked on that pilot where we shot in Greece and Florence and Paris and London, all back to back. It was, I think, like 20 days that we were gone for. And from the pilot, went off to nine seasons. So I was on, I think, 48, no, I was in 60, 60 different episodes in 48 countries around the world for the food show. And it was amazing. I mean, it was always a dream come True. Like I always wanted to work on an international food show. And I mean, you're getting paid to, to go around the world and eat food, essentially. It's, I mean, you can't beat that. So from an audio perspective, it was, it was pretty straightforward. We, we would have three lobs in the bag, single channel hops to two cameras. And I would put camera mic on each one of the cameras because they would break off a lot and, you know, just knock off B-roll or they would, when we were doing interviews out in the, in the dining room with guests, the B camera could be shooting in the kitchen. And I wouldn't be able to get good net while we were doing that. So I, I had to have a, a camera mic on there just as a, as a backup. And I used lockets on both of those and I had two IFBs for the producers. And all the kitchens were, were fully operational. On, on diners, they shut everything down and they have complete control over the kitchens and the dining rooms. But... For delicious destinations, we had to work in you know fully operational, functioning kitchens with dishwashers and you know chefs and cooks. So it was it was loud and it was busy and it was slippery and it was it wasn't dangerous, but you had to be very careful of where you were standing and you couldn't get into people's way because you've got hot fryers and stuff everywhere and, and open flames. So we really had to be careful of where we were situating ourselves. So. Because of that, I chose not to boom anybody in the kitchen. I would just, I would hide a lav on the chef. Um, usually pop out of a chef coat. You can easily expose a, a cost 11 just out of the top buttonhole and then kind of tape it in the background so it doesn't really move anywhere. And nobody is really looking. And if I always had a white mic and a black mic and, you know, 50-50, you're going to have a chef wearing one of those colors. So that's what we did in the kitchens. And it was just a collective decision not to not to run boom because it really wasn't safe moving around and dodging the cameras and dodging the dishwashers and dodging the waiters and it just it, it wasn't uh, something that we decided to do. Now were were the producers and directors were they did they have a video village set up or were they right there with you guys? How'd that work? 
So we would have a, a producer with us who was asking the questions. Um, and if we were in a, a foreign country in a different language, we'd have a translator as well. And the translator was always mic'd up. Um, I always kept them on a separate, separate channel. And we, that translation was, was mostly for the producer to understand what they're talking about. It wasn't going to be a direct translation that they were going to use in the show. It was more of just like a, a rough translation for the, the writers and for the producer in the field. And we would also have a writer in the field, which this is really one of the only shows that uh, I've been on that has writers in the field. And they made that decision because you can look at footage back in an edit room and you can write about it, but unless you really are there tasting it and smelling it and experiencing what you're cooking, you're not going to be able to write as well. So they made a decision the second or third season to actually send a writer out in addition to a producer. So we had a pretty decent sized crew. We'd have two cameras, we'd have an AC, we'd have a writer, we'd have a producer, and then we'd always hire a local fixer, a local translator, and usually a driver or two, and a PA as well. Um, and fixers are are invaluable. So I, in, in all the, the countries that I've shot, and you, you really have to have a fixer and a fixer is um, a local producer and they are familiar with you know the cultural nuances of filming in that country and they can grease different officials upon entry with customs and they're they're really an invaluable source to productions uh, i've been on some shoots where they won't hire a fixer and you just show up and it, it's it's never easy trying getting into some of these countries, especially if you haven't cleared anything with customs ahead of times. Like, it's always been a, a tricky thing um, not using fixers. Was it just you finish there and then you're hopping on a plane and going to the next place, or did you get like a day layover to enjoy the sights and sounds, or is it just nonstop action? It was it was pretty much nonstop action. It depends on how long of the shoot it was and and where it was. Whenever we flew to. Europe. Uh, we take an overnight flight. We get there first thing in the morning. You know, we'd have the the rest of the day uh, as a down day. But then the next day we were shooting, and we shoot for four days straight, um, six kitchens, six dishes, and then we'd have two half days of B roll, kind of interspersed in between there. We never had like a full B roll day, and then we would fly to the next city. Um, sometimes in the same country. Often it was in a different country, and then we'd shoot for another four days and then we'd travel home um, when we went to asia we'd always get there and by the time it was we landed it's usually like 11 or 12 p.m and we would have the next day off for that so it was pretty rare to have a down day sometimes we would if it was a really cool location we would stay longer and try to do some activities like when we were in um, in thailand we were in bangkok and then we went to phuket and we stayed an extra day and we chartered a boat and went out to the, the Kopipi Islands and did some snorkeling. And we had a shoot in Tahiti and we did the same thing where I set up a, a, a shark dive uh, afterwards for the crew. So, you know, if you're in a really cool place, like, all right, let's spend an extra day and, you know, really try to take advantage of it. But, you know, we were on the roads so much that you really just, you're, you're exhausted and you just really want to get home afterwards. 
Yes, it's not a vacation. It's not a vacation by any means. It, it looks it looks great on on Facebook and on on Instagram. And whenever you come back, and you know, all my neighbors and friends are you know think you've been on this vacation, and it it looks really glamorous. And I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's it was a great experience, and I got to see the world. Um, but it was work, you know, and. That's the thing with our jobs is a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, you're getting these once in a lifetime experiences and you've just got this amazing access just being in in television in general. We get a lot of opportunities to see things that nobody else would ever have. So you really have to appreciate that. And, you know, it's still work, but it's it's pretty amazing thing that we get to do. Oh, that's true. Now, you you also have worked on some other shows that have done international production. What were some of those? So when I first started uh, in in television, I worked for a company called Curtis Productions. I was a staff PA, and I worked my way up to be a coordinating producer and then a production manager. And I was I was sending crews all over the world uh, for these adventure documentaries that they were doing, and these guys would come back and they'd have these great pictures and great stories. And I was like, you know what, this is what I want to do. I want to get out there and I want to, I want to travel. I want to get paid to travel. So I learned how to do audio uh, and to shoot just whenever the gear was in the office, it would come back and I just kind of picked the stuff up and main mixer at the time, his name was Joel Sartori. He taught me how to do audio by essentially breaking a rig like he would take the rig and he would completely dismantle it and you know switch everything off to you know the incorrect settings and and this is fp32 days and you know we had all electrosonic uh, 201s and 195s and stuff so it wasn't too complicated it wasn't these multi-frequency scanning it wasn't like a little computer but still he and he would say all right you've got five minutes to fix that because you know you're your your producer's waiting and you, you're ready to roll. And so he taught me how to get the rig working again quickly because nobody likes waiting on audio. You know, we always joke about waiting on audio, but when you're on a set and you see a bad camera angle or see bad lighting, it's easy for a producer to say, oh, let's fix that. But audio is, it's like an enigma. You never you can see it. It's just this kind of you know, omnipresent thing that's just out there and you don't really know exactly how to, how to fix it. So that was a big learning experience for me was, was to learn how to do audio quickly that way. Because of that company, I was able to start doing more international stuff with them. Um, they would send me out as a mixer initially. Um, I did some shoots as a, as a, as a field producer. Um, we went to Mongolia uh, for a History Channel project to look for Genghis Khan's tomb. And I went out there for two summers for six weeks each. And we lived in a yurt in the middle of nowhere and just digging up tombs, looking for Genghis Khan's body, um, which is a pretty amazing experience. And from you know that experience, I was able to meet other producers and kind of sell myself as, a, as an international sound guy and was able to kind of build that into you know most of my most of my work so i started doing a lot of documentaries initially i had a job in komodo island for uh discovery channel um where we were filming komodo dragons for two weeks it was amazing you know we got to this place and we had a host and we were walking 
looking for the dragons because we needed to get some of these things and couldn't find anything. So we're hiking and we had guides with us and everybody has one guide with you with a stick just as protection. And you're, you're not allowed to, they're, they're endangered species, so you can't actually, you know, shoot these things, obviously. But they'll chase you and they will kill you if they have a chance. So we were walking through looking for these and then one of our guides, guides comes running out of the forest yelling, Komodo, Komodo, Komodo! And literally 10 Komodos are chasing after our guide. Um, and he brings them all right to us. So we all started running around and panicking and trying to figure out what we were doing because we weren't expecting this at all. And we were literally being you know, stalked by these things. Um, they can't run for very long distances, but they will sit there and they will slowly pursue you. So it was, uh, it was an interesting experience, you know, being on the, the, the lower end of the food chain while, uh, while we we're still out there, you know, trying to work. I did have some gear issues when I was out there. I had a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I had several of my cables were, were shorting out. And I always bring a soldering kit with me uh, wherever I go on, on these international shoots because you could be in the middle of the ocean. You know, you could be you know, on Komodo Island and you could have gear go down. So it's always important to have a basic understanding of how to solder cables uh, just in case you're getting shorts. Um, I also bring a lot of backup gear. So I always bring up, you know, a couple extra backup wireless, an extra boom pole. I'll bring an extra shotgun mic, extra headphones. Um, just because you never know when something's going to go down and you're still expected to work wherever, you know, wherever and whenever you go. So just because something goes down, you know, it's not like a camera where, you know, that's a critical, I mean, it, it, all of our stuff is critical, but it's, it's easier for us to bring a backup set of wireless or backup boom. Whereas, you know, camera guy can't really bring a, a backup, backup camera with him. Now, you, you had mentioned earlier that sometimes you have to put camera mics on. Does the camera department, do they usually have, you know, like little shotgun mics? Because it seems like always, you know, the crews I work with, they all have their own mics, you know, for the camera. But is that something you, you normally bring and they don't? I do not bring camera mics with me. That's actually a really good question. I've thought about having them with me, um, but most, if not all, of the, the camera crews that I work with have them. Um, you'll find that a lot more with cameras from rental houses. Uh, usually they just don't include it in the kit or it's an extra line item that they don't want to pay for. Um, but most of the stuff that I've, I've worked on, the cameraman or uh, the production company will provide camera mics onto the, onto the cameras. Uh, and especially now that with multi-track recording, all of the critical audio is, is recorded on the sound mixer. So, you know, back and before all this, before the multi-tracking, we were always, you know, you'd have, you'd have a FP33 or a, a 442 mixer and critical audio was being recorded to, cameras. I mean, this is not film days. This is like, you know, regular TV crews with, um, you know, like beta cams and digi betas and HD cam cameras. So when you're able to record the critical audio in your bag, you're able to put camera mics on cameras and use that as more of a reference and scratch track and just make sure that you're, you're synced up in terms of time code with a locket. And then just sending a rough mix scratch track to one channel on to the camera. Now, you also work with Sesame Street and the Muppets. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, miking up those guys. So one of my first freelance gigs actually was working on a, on a puppet show. Um, and they were the actors uh, and writers from Sesame Street and the Muppet Show. Several of them live in the Chicagoland area and they were doing some side projects. And at the time I had never 
done that. So I had some discussions with the director about miking techniques and just finding out how they've been doing it on Sesame Street. And puppet shows are interesting because the sets are built about three feet off of the ground and the actors have their arms up and their heads down because they're looking at monitors below them. They're very mobile. They're constantly contorting and brushing up against each other and moving around. So standard mic placement on the chest doesn't work because they're moving all over the place. So we took headbands, like little sweatbands that you use for like basketball, and we would sew an elastic fabric onto that. And I could weave my cable through and attach the mic pointed downwards placed at their forehead. And that eliminated all physical interference. And that was really the best way to, to mic these guys. I would also have some hats just in case they don't like headbands. Uh, and that worked equally as well. They just put a hat on backwards and then you'd, you know, attach the mic to the front of the, to the front of the hat. Okay. And since they're not on camera, it doesn't have to be pretty. Exactly. Yeah. And they do a lot of ADR afterwards too. You know, we'll be recording lines and the network may or may not like the voice of that one particular puppet. And so they would, you know, ADR it afterwards. And it's pretty easy to, to ADR a puppet because there's not a lot of, uh, you know, exact lip syncing to do. It's just, you know, lip flap essentially. So <laughs> we would, uh, you know, you have a little bit of forgive. You knew that your actor was going to be ADR'd, you'd have a little more, you know, leniency about if you hear any noises on set, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bust a take because of, because of a noise. If you knew you we were going to get ADR'd afterwards. I would also use the DPA 4088 directional headset mics on the actors. And I really love the sound of those. And those are just, you know, it's an over ear headset. It's a metal band that you wrap around the back of the head and it's got like a, like a little metal wire boom that kind of the mic is, you know, sitting directly next to the actor's mouth. And those sounded great and they really isolated uh, everybody's tracks when they were talking over each other. It did a really good job of isolating the audio. But the problem that I found that sometimes with certain actors, they would bump into them a lot if they're moving their arms because, you know, their arms are up. So if they, you know, have their left arm up and they turn to the left and it's going to rub up against the metal, boom. And certain actors were constantly doing that and other ones wouldn't do it at all. So I really had to figure out which actors those DPAs would work with and which ones they wouldn't. And then I'd have to put, you know, the headbands or the hats and all that. So it took, took a while of several days of trying to figure out, all right, this guy's, you know, learning his, his movements and techniques and figure out which mics to put on which actors. Okay. So for those sound mixers that are getting ready to travel around the world, maybe they've never done that before. Do you have any tips on what to bring and what not to bring? Well, being prepared is 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 critical, um, and a lot of people don't realize that you have to have for for certain countries you need to have a document called a carnet, and that's C A R N E T. A carnet is a it's a, a legal document that is stating that you are taking your equipment out of the country, bringing it to this other one, leaving with it and bringing it back to the United States and not selling it. So it's pretty much preventing you from selling this gear and making, you know, skirting taxes essentially. So it doesn't totally apply to production specifically. It's more for people who are importing, exporting a lot, but we fall under that umbrella of importing and exporting equipment because, you know, we're bringing in tens of thousands of dollars of stuff. So it's really important to make sure that your production company that's hiring you is 
buying one of these and giving one of you. And they're like maybe four or $500, but it's invaluable to have that. Um, I've been on a particular shoot where we were going to Canada of all places. And Canada is really the hardest country to get in and out of for work purposes that I found out of the 68 countries I've been to. Every time I go to, to Canada, it's it's very difficult getting in there. And we had a, a company who did not want to do a carnet, and they essentially told us to to say that we're going in as as tourists and not working. And of course, lying to customs is never a good idea. And they you know figured us out, and they almost deported us because of this. Um, we had to spend hours and hours and hours and ended up this weird loophole and they gave us temporary residency uh, for a week to go in and shoot. I don't know what happened, what our producer said to get us in there, but we had to pay a lot of money and promise not to do it again. But I had a gut feeling initially on that shoot and I would, had mentioned to the company, I'm like, this isn't a good idea. You know, you can't just fly by the seat of your pants going in a lot of these countries. If you're coming in with gear, you have to do it the right way. And that's where hiring a local fixer who knows the local customs officers, they can come in and, you know, you walk up and boom, 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 they stamp your carnet and you know, you're done. That stuff is really important. One thing that I always do is I always ask how to say, can I put a microphone on you in, in every country that we're in? There's a lot of cultural differences in different countries and, you know, going up to a person and just, you know, sticking your hands down their shirt is... You know, sometimes a little, little weird. Um, I mean, it's weird wherever you do it, but sometimes it's just not appropriate. Um, so you have to, I always have our translator with me and then have them ask it and kind of explain it. And um, some women just don't want to be mic'd, so you have to have your, your translator or another woman do it for you. So there's a lot of cultural understanding that you have to, have to be prepared for when you're in different countries, just so you don't offend people. What do you always need to be bringing when you travel overseas or out of the country? you have any, like, I got to have this, or you, you always need to take this? Well, I always bring a, a really good power adapter with me. And I use a, a Bestech uh, international power adapter, and it does the 200 to 110 volt step-down converter. And it's got four USB ports in there, too, so I can charge my iPad, I can charge my phone, I can charge my uh, UltraSync lockets off of that. Um, and then it's got, I think, three or four regular you know, US plugs, um, but they have the different outlets for the different countries that you're going to. And you can get an Amazon for like 30 bucks. It's this, it's this great, awesome power adapter that I've been able to use everywhere. Like it's never failed me. Um, so I always carry that with me. Um, I pack all of my gear in Eagle Creek packing cubes. They're kind of uh, felt rubbery, somewhat solid cubes, but a little soft and malleable, but it's really good for putting extra mics and wireless in there. Uh, I use Eagle Creek bags, just different color-coded bags for my cables, uh, and I put all of that into a, a Pelican Air 1610 uh, case, and that fits both my boom poles and my two shotguns, and I always bring a soldering kit wherever I go as well, just just in case something goes down and you can't get a new, you know, new cables anywhere. Now the big question, what is your worst on-set experience? So I think the worst experience that I've had, I was on a shoot in Hawaii. We were filming Volcanoes National Park, and 
I was still pretty new. I wasn't totally familiar with my gear yet. It was kind of one of those early jobs where like, all right, you're going here. And, you know, it, it was one of my earlier jobs. So I wasn't totally in rhythm with what I need and how I need to set everything up. We got to a location. We're setting everything up and I had nothing. And this is back in the days before we would multi-track. So there's no, no 633s, no 744s. This is like FP33 straight to camera. I forgot links to the camera. I had no hard line and I had no wireless transmitters and no wireless receivers to go to the camera. So we're about to do this whole scene with these volcanoes and I forgot my stuff. There's no way to record the audio. So I fessed up and I'm like, I got to go back. And it was an hour to get back there. I went back, I got the, the wireless receivers, I got my transmitters, I went back the set where we were filming and I forgot the cables to go from my mixer to the transmitter and I had to go back one more time it was awful and everybody was just so pissed off at me and I, I was so embarrassed I still to this day think about that as a lesson, like, all right, do you have everything? I've I've been driving to sets before and I'll stop the car on the side of the road and I'll get out, make sure that I've got everything in there because I'm always thinking of that one time when I screwed up, not once, but twice. And it was not an easy, just like, oh, hey, let me go back to my car and get this thing. It was like a major ordeal. Like I set us back like an entire half a day, twice. It was brutal. So I still remember that. And I still, I don't think I ever told anybody that. That's a pretty embarrassing story. And now I'm saying it on an open podcast to everybody who they can hear that. <laughs> That's a good one. And, that, and then the follow-up question is, yeah, have you ever forgotten anything on set? So anything else have you ever forgotten that was critical, that you were just another lesson learned? Um, I put, after we were doing some interview at someone's house um, and staying at a hotel about two or three hours away i left a boom pole i put it by the door of the the front door and when we left someone opened the front door obviously because you have to get out of the house and my boom was hidden behind that door so we all left we get back to the hotel i don't have my boom pole it's like 10 o'clock at night i had to drive back to this person's house get the boom pole and then drive back another two hours left. Like, you know, it ended up adding another like five hours to my day. And it was just stupid just because, you know, I had it by the back door to leave and it just got hidden. So I've, I've been very good. And that was, you know, I probably think the same year that I, I left the stuff in Hawaii. I mean, it was like I was still new and I was still really getting used to this whole audio thing and having all these little, you know, pieces everywhere and cables everywhere and a little accoutrements that we all have and it's hard keeping track of all this stuff you know it's like we have so many little pieces that we need to account for you know the the antennas the the vampire clips the moleskin the you know the everything everything little batteries like there's so many things that we have to be you know, conscious of that we have to you know stay on top of that we've got it with us um so i think those two Early on in my career, you know, screwing up and leaving stuff behind has really helped me not do that since then. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, speaking of little things, uh, what expendables do you like to use on set? So I've been using undercovers, Rycote undercovers, a lot with my COS-11s. Um, 
I've moved over to the Ursa soft circles as well. They're very comparable to the Rycote undercovers. Their Rycote is a felt material and the Ursa is more of a kind of synthetic, thinner material. I like both of those, so I'll keep a couple mics pre-rigged with that. I use uh, super sticky dots as well behind that because I find that the the sticky part to the right coats don't really stick to skin or clothing as well or kind of you know maybe halfway through the day it, it just drops so i get this uh these little super sticky dots it's like uh it's like double-sided hollywood tape but it's in the perfect shape for the back of the the right coat undercover so i use those i go through a lot and also you can use that over and over and over again and so you don't have to keep on using a new right coat every single time you like somebody I use vampire clips as well. And I have moleskin in my kit as well. I don't typically use it. I find that it's kind of, it's very visible when you're hiding a mic with moleskin. Um, I know a lot of guys swear by it. And yeah, it sounds great when you can get a perfectly hidden mic with moleskin. But a lot of times if you've got a, um, a you know, moleskin on a, t a guy's t-shirt, you're, you're gonna see that. So I tend to use the undercovers and the Ursa um, soft circles for a lot more stuff because it's it's not as visible as uh, as other options. Can you give us a range of what kind of a rate that someone, say, working in Chicago as a production sound mixer, ENG kind of a thing? Yeah, so the rates in Chicago, there's a, there's a good sound community here, and we're, we're pretty tight, and we're always... Um, we're always reaching out to each other and trying to keep rates competitive. We're all competitors obviously you know mixer a is going against the same job for mixer b and but we all know or most of us know i think that uh you know while we're still competition we're also gonna be getting jobs from each other you know i i refer a job to another guy if i'm double booked and he's gonna come back and do the same thing for me it's kind of like you know i'll scratch your back you scratch my back kind of thing we try to keep our rates pretty comparable to each other um i think a basic 10-hour day in Chicago for a mixer is about 550 to 650 just for their wages. And then a basic kit, which is a mixer recorder, uh, two lobs, and a boom, that's usually about... We try to go out for 300 with that. Sometimes we'll drop down to 250. Sometimes we'll try to go for 350. It depends on the job. Like if it's a, a documentary or a friend that we want to do something with, you know, you'll you'll drop your. You're not going to turn down a job over 50 dollars. So that's the. You know, I think like 850 to 900 is a is a pretty good starting rate for for mixers in Chicago. Okay. If somebody wanted to go into location sound, what would you recommend they do? So advising. People who want to get into location sound, uh, if you're just in college and you're taking these classes, and you know, do as many student films as, as you can. Learning how to mic people, uh, putting mics on. If you if you have access to gear, putting mics on your on your your roommate or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and you know just practice hanging mics, hiding mics. Hiding mics is the hardest part of our job. Once you get that skill down, uh, I think all the other stuff kind of falls in. You'll, you know, you be on more sets and you'll get your set kit. You'll figure out how to work with the different departments, trying to help out as much as possible on, on any kind of student film or any, 
you know, I hate saying go look at, you know, Craigslist and, and, and Production Hub and Mandy and all those job sites, but, you know, there's jobs out there and you can get a lot of experience on them. You know, I've, I've gotten jobs on Production Hub. I don't typically follow, you know, all the, all the leads on there, but staying on all the different sites, getting on as many forums and maybe like Facebook forums, there's a ton of Facebook forums for, for sound mixers. You can ask questions, you can just follow and you, know, you can just be a fly on the wall and then read what people are talking about. Cause people are talking about mic techniques. People are talking about rates and how, how do I negotiate, you know, working in this certain situation? Like there's so much there on, on every forum, like your local Chicago forum or the, the big freelancers forum where there's like 6,000 mixers who are all kind of going over stuff. Like there's so many, there's so much, there's so much info out there that, you can really just kind of go through and and read what everybody is talking about and you can really learn a lot from what collectively people are putting out there on on a lot of these forums good stuff there all right matt well as we kind of start to wrap things up what's the best way for people to get in touch with you my email is matt at soundtravels.tv. Uh, website is www.soundtravels.tv. Uh, and my Instagram tag is at soundtravels. All right, great. Well, Matt Vogel, based out of Chicago, Illinois. You guys look him up. And hey, Matt, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts, and for Android users, check out Google Podcasts. Also, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.